Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about a new report from History Colorado on historic Native American boarding schools in the state, including the Fort Lewis Boarding School. This idea that it was okay for people at the school to essentially abduct these children. Then we'll hear of efforts to return land in the Rocky Mountain region back to Native American tribes. We have to get beyond land acknowledgements. It's not enough anymore. Then on October 14th, an annular solar eclipse will cross parts of southeast Utah, southwest Colorado and northern New Mexico. We'll hear more about the eclipse known as the Ring of Fire. Do you see a ring of sun around the silhouette of the moon? Then we'll pay a visit to the circus, the Salida Circus. The most exciting part of being a rodeo clown is when the kids come to you and you make them a balloon animal and you interact with the kids. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. History Colorado has released a report on historic Native American boarding schools in the state, including the Fort Lewis Boarding School in Hesperus near Durango in southwest Colorado. The comprehensive review has new information about Native American children who suffered abuse and who died at some of the schools. Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has been reporting on the story. Well, the study came about over a year ago um, when uh, the state of Colorado issued a, a bill that became a law that granted funding to History Colorado to uh, do this research and this research being investigating uh, boarding school trauma and atrocities and the history of federal Indian boarding schools. And, th- and they had a one whole year to do it from July first 2022 to june 30 2023 well their findings have just been published and you've been talking to various different people involved in the study in particular dr holly norton who is colorado's state archaeologist tell us what dr norton said about just even finding this information what that was like yeah dr norton was is very helpful she's very passionate um she it it sounded very intense. It was intensive archival deep dives uh, in Washington, D.C., in Denver. We would sit in this room, a bunch of us at a table, where they would bring the documents, and we just, from open until close, we were scanning. We weren't even really reading except to identify what we were looking for. Making photocopies of all these archival documents they could get their hands on about Colorado boarding schools and just about boarding school histories in general. And once they had these, all these documents, which I, I think it was hundreds and hundreds of pages, they had to sort through them, find what stories were relevant, uh, find what stories were new, and uh, basically create this 120-page report that really succinctly gives the histories of the boarding schools, but also anecdotal stories as well. And then in addition to the archival research, that was one part of it, uh, they went and did geophysical analysis in Hesperus. And they're in the process of doing it in Grand Junction to 
try and locate the, the, the bodies of the lost children from the federal Indian boarding school era and to try to put a number on how many people might be buried at the school. Well, as you were saying, that geophysical analysis is ongoing and this is happening at the old Fort Lewis Cemetery in Hesperus. It's in southern Colorado. But the Fort Lewis School itself and the current Fort Lewis School has actually been preparing themselves and their students for this report to come out. Give listeners a sense of what the current college, Fort Lewis School, is right now and its relationship to the previous Fort Lewis boarding school. Yeah, Fort Lewis College uh, only shares the name of the old Fort Lewis boarding school, but it, it is nothing like the old Fort Lewis boarding school. Um, it is the same institution that has been developed over decades and in, in the past century now. First in 1911, there was a law from Congress, I believe, saying that the school was no longer to, to be an Indian boarding school, but rather it was going to be a vocational school and offer uh, completely free tuition to Native American students. So, And that still continues today at Fort Lewis College, that they offer free tuition to Native American students, and that goes back a century now. Yeah, they really make it their focus to protect, highlight, uplift Native voices, Native students. And so they've been preparing for this report to come out because it's it's very, you know, it's, it's sensitive, it's traumatic, it brings up a lot of old history that the people of this area had to deal with. Well, I know that there has been a lot of coverage and discussion about the overall trauma and the overall impact and legacy of Native American boarding schools over generations. People were children were torn away from their families, completely um, removed and separated from their culture, their language. But there's also this other very upsetting thing. There were layers of systemic abuse. There was negligence. There was criminal behavior at these boarding schools. And that's what a lot of this new report digs into. And as you said, Clark, that in addition to getting the data and numbers, they're also looking at anecdotal stories. And that really, I think, exemplifies the impact on this. So I know one of the stories, one of the anecdotes is the story of Frank Taylor. Could you tell us a little bit about Frank? Frank was the only youth child who was at the Fort Lewis boarding school. Right. Yeah. So at a certain time, um, yeah, Dr. Holly Norton recounted this story to me um, that there was a lot of disease that spread in the early years of the Fort Lewis Indian boarding school. And um, <clears throat> all the youth people apparently pulled their children out of the schools. But uh, Frank Taylor was the only one left. And they called him an orphan. A lot of these orphans actually weren't. They had parents and family. But I think the government could designate them as orphans and make it easier for them to make decisions without having to consult with the parents or the tribe. The team found some of the details of Frank's story through a newspaper that the school published. In the newspaper, they also learned that Frank's story intersected with the story of another Native American child. A young girl, she must have only been like three or four. Maybe she had wandered away from her family. Frank found her and they brought her back to the school and they didn't try to find her parents. They didn't try to contact any adults. They cut her hair. They changed her clothes and they immediately kind of enrolled her and adopted her into the school system. 
the father came and found her and collected her and, and took her home. I'm just imagining this very casual kidnapping, this idea that it was okay for people at the school to essentially abduct these children. What is the reaction or what has been the reaction of the tribal communities who have known these stories because it was their children, it was their ancestors who lived through this. They've known all of this information now, I suppose. What has been the reaction from the tribes? I don't know yet. I haven't spoken to anybody from the tribe specifically, but I know that uh, the report was finished on June 30th and it only came out uh, earlier this week on October 3rd. Um, released to the public by History Colorado. And that was a very deliberate decision to give the tribes time with it first. That they, they had advanced access to it, you know, from the beginning. Um, to do whatever they needed to do to react to it, to make sure the report was respectful, done in a respectful way. Um, so they, they had they've had some time with it. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll be hearing any comments from them soon. Um, as now it's public, but it was made known to journalists not to reach out to the tribes for official comment before October 3rd to give them that uh, respectful time to take in the report. Clark, you've done a lot of reporting on what this report reveals about the old Fort Lewis boarding school. But as you said earlier on, one of the other areas that they're looking at in the report, and actually there are still several questions remaining, is about the boarding school in Grand Junction. They're, I believe, looking for the cemetery. Is that one of the spaces that they're going to be doing this geophysical mapping and, and trying to get a bigger sense of what, what happened there? Right. That's one of the big unanswered questions is, uh, where is the cemetery at the Grand Junction boarding school, which is now the Teller Institute? And, and how many people are buried there? Dr. Holly Norton said that with the Fort Lewis school, it was very easy because there was a specific cemetery uh, and they know where it is. But in Grand Junction, they don't know where it is and they still haven't found it. They they have a, a running number of students that may have passed at the boarding school based on archival documents, but um, it's not a comprehensive number yet. Clark Adamidas, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and people can read your work online at ksjd.org and ksut.org. Clark, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Maeve. Thanks for having me. As we heard, Fort Lewis College in Durango has been supporting its Indigenous students with the release of this report. KDUR's Sarah Flower has been reporting on how the college is reconciling in the wake of the news. KDUR is part of Fort Lewis College. The full archival report shows the grim truth that at least 31 students from eight tribal nations died while attending the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School from 1892 to 1909. The ages of those that passed range from 5 to 22 years old. The report also details that roughly 1,100 Native American students from 20 tribes attended the boarding school as they were forcefully removed from their homes 
and stripped of their traditions. History Colorado conducted this report as part of legislation from the state. Exact numbers and data that was found is a guesstimate at best, as details and record-keeping was done from the perspective of former superintendents and from the federal government in Washington, D.C. Fort Lewis College officials have been working to prepare the campus community of these difficult truths that are part of the history of the college. Tom Stridicus is the president of Fort Lewis College and says while these documents are checkered, the goal of the boarding school is obvious. The information that we have was written by people whose intent was to erase the culture of the Native American students that they were working with. So by definition, the nature of the information and the material is one-sided and serving an interest of a particular group against the interest of another. That is going to leave a measure of dissatisfaction for people in our community. And history always is incomplete. And I think for us, daylighting what we can daylight and then moving forward is, is important. If there's other things to find out, you know, we certainly will support those measures to continue to do that. This comprehensive report also sheds light on the sexual abuse of women and children at the Indian boarding school from longtime superintendent Thomas Breen. Breen served from 1894 to 1903. He was forced to leave after a public investigation was done into these allegations. Heather Shotton is the vice president of diversity affairs at the college and is a citizen of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. Shotton says while this history is certainly difficult to hear, she's focused on the future of indigenous students. These are difficult truths to confront. We also recognize that there is tremendous hope in our indigenous community on campus. I see it in our students every day when we see the the ways that they're engaging, the research that they conduct, when we hear them engaging in language revitalization, when they introduce themselves in their own languages, we're reminded that while we still feel the impacts of the federal Indian boarding school system, our students are so amazing and so resilient. They offer us so much hope. Fort Lewis College officials were preparing themselves for the grim details they knew might be in this report, but some of the findings even surprised Stridicus. I didn't realize that Mexican-American communities were pulled into the boarding school, identified as Navajo, because the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School was having trouble with enrollment because it was understaffed and not a great place. The documentation around the resistance of the Ute tribes to sending their children to the boarding school. You know, I'd heard it, but I hadn't, I hadn't read it as extensively. History Colorado, the organization that conducted this report, will be on campus in late October to answer any questions that students, faculty, or staff might have with the findings in this report. Reporting for KDUR News, I'm Sarah Flower. You are listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The second Monday in October is officially Columbus Day. In recent years, some state governments have also designated the date as Indigenous Peoples Day, but Colorado is not among them. Some cities within Colorado have chosen to recognise Indigenous Peoples Day at a local level. 
Right Relationship Boulder hosted an event on October 8th to commemorate the date and to examine future steps. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Shannon Young reports. Land acknowledgements in the form of short statements linking physical territories to displaced Indigenous people have become increasingly common in the last decade or so. Public figures routinely start off their speeches with land acknowledgements, while others tack them onto email signatures. For many descendants of those displaced, the gesture can feel a bit performative. No more land acknowledgements. Rick Williams is part Cheyenne and an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota tribe. We have to get beyond land acknowledgements. It's not enough anymore to come and say you're in the homeland of somebody else's territory without doing something meaningful, without taking some action. Williams is referring to the restoration of land to the descendants of those displaced. The demand, often referred to as land back, has been gaining momentum along with efforts to educate the public on the long-suppressed history of how the Rocky Mountain West was colonized. They didn't want people to know that the greatest genocide that happened in America happened here in Colorado. Between 1861 and 1864, almost all Cheyenne and Arapaho and Osage and Kiowa People on the Eastern Front Range and the Plains were forcibly eliminated or removed. That's why today you have no Indian reservations in this land. A veteran educator and advocate, Williams played a key role in convincing Colorado Governor Jared Polis to rescind two proclamations issued in 1864 by then Territorial Governor John Evans. The proclamations laid the framework for large-scale violence targeting indigenous inhabitants, including the infamous Sand Creek Massacre. Williams is now working to form a Truth Restoration and Education Commission to document and examine the history of the violent displacement of Native people from what is now Colorado. He says the next step is planning for the eventual return of the descendants of those displaced. Some people have talked about an embassy or a consulate so that they can at least bring the leadership back and begin becoming a part of the discussions and, and, and what's been going on contemporarily. Let's do that. Let's make that a goal. A year from now, our allies, I hope, you'll find a way to make that happen. Let's find a way for those tribes who are ready to come back. They need land. The issue was addressed at the recent annual meeting of the Southern Arapaho and Cheyenne Tribal Council. One resolution that was passed was for the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe to start to come back to Colorado. Southern Arapaho tribal elder Fred Mosqueda was speaking at an Indigenous Peoples Day event held at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. He says his tribe's connection to the land persists through the generations. When we come here, we still can walk among the, the creeks and the rivers 
the camping grounds, and it still talks to us. We still hear it, and we still know that we have stories of this place, and we know the land here took care of us, and it can again if we're just given the opportunity to come. We don't want to come and say what we want is, we want that, we want, we want to come as neighbors. We want to come as partners. <laughs> However it may be, the Shine Rapu tribes are ready. Hey, ho, ho. Mosqueda emphasized that he is Southern Arapaho, but that prior to the mid-1800s, that distinction did not exist. The Southern Arapaho Reservation is in Oklahoma, whereas the Northern Arapaho one is in Wyoming. And I hope that our people could do the same thing and make that resolution and start getting our way back here to home, where we can have our lands. Jacqueline White is an enrolled member of the Northern Arapaho Tribe. It's up to this next generation to start building those relationships and helping us come home. Rick Williams outlined a practical solution at the dairy, suggesting a 0.005% fee on upcoming real estate transactions as a viable path forward. In Boulder County alone, it will generate $20 million to help our effort. Statewide, almost $60 million. That is what we need to bring our people home. Those are the kinds of actions that we need to take. And most of all, we have to recognize the truth because it is in that truth that change is going to happen. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Shannon Young in Boulder. On October 14th, an annular solar eclipse will cross North, Central and South America. Parts of Southeast Utah, Southwest Colorado and Northern New Mexico will be in its path. This eclipse is known as the Ring of Fire. Chris White, eclipse coordinator for the Earth to Sky Interagency Partnership, spoke about the eclipse with Peggy Hodgkins on Science Moab, which is broadcast on KZMU. An annular solar eclipse is a lot different than a total solar eclipse. And really what it is, is the position of where the moon is in its orbit around Earth. So there's times when the moon is just slightly farther away and times when it's a little closer. And so that decides what type of eclipse we get. An annular eclipse, the moon is farthest away it can be from us. And so it doesn't cover the full disk of the sun. And so you don't get to see the corona. Instead, you see a ring of sun around the silhouette of the moon. And so that ring is basically where we get the name annular eclipse. So annulus means ring in Latin. How much variation is there in the lunar path from year to year? Are you able to predict it out 10 years or, or no? Oh, yeah. They have they have eclipses predicted out for uh far into the future. I think there's like four or five that are going to hit Australia over the next decade. A lot are going to hit Australia, and we're not going to see another one again for quite some time, at least the total solar eclipse. So it's this is really your year to, if you want to travel and see a, an eclipse of some sort, you've got the annular or the total, or you could go do both. Yeah. And 
and they're very different. So, you know, with the annular eclipse, you, you don't get that darkness. You know, it's going to be more like sunset colors on the horizons with maybe a dark cloud above you. That's what it's going to seem like. But you'll see that golden ring around the moon, which is pretty, pretty incredible to see. And then with the total eclipse, it's very, very different, right? You, you get that nice darkness that you can see. And you can actually see the shadow approaching. When it goes over the top of you, it gets really cold. And then you can see the corona of the, the sun around the moon. And then as it sweeps off, it goes back to daytime. That was Chris White, Eclipse Coordinator for the Earth to Sky Interagency Partnership, speaking about the annular solar eclipse with Peggy Hodgkins on Science Moab. And you can find the entire interview at kzmu.org or sciencemoab.org. And we round out today's show with a trip to the circus. The Salida Circus provides circus training to children and adults in Chafee County, Colorado, as a community building tool. They're often seen performing at community events and festivals. And most recently, they took centre stage in downtown Salida for Chicken Stock, a celebration of KHEN Radio's 20th anniversary. My name's Jennifer Dempsey. I'm founder of the Salida Circus, and this was like the funnest day. We're called a social circus, and that means we use circus as a social work tool, first and foremost. That's our primary thing to include, particularly maybe at-risk kids or marginalized kids, but everybody's invited, and you the only requirement for joining is to have a sense of humor, circus spirit, and the willingness to take healthy risks and the want to have fun. My name is Taylor. I am 13 years old. I got to Salida when I was about eight years old um, in 2019. And, you know, I didn't really have anything else to do. So my grandma found the New Year's Circus Camp and I've been in circus ever since because I loved it. I just loved it so much. Um, I usually practice around twice a week and then a little bit more practice when I have a show coming up. And then I get to travel around a lot, so that gives me a lot of practice. We travel all around Colorado, and there's even a couple people that are, have traveled all the way to Ireland and Bethlehem. You feel great adrenaline when you're performing and around everyone um, that you're performing to. And then just the feeling that you have after you perform and everyone is clapping for you. It's a great experience and a great feeling. My name is Colonel Edward Aloy. I'm an auctioneer here in Salida, and I'm with Salida Circus, and I'm also uh, a rodeo clown. I go to all the Colorado Circuit rodeos and do balloons and bullfight and whatever we need to do. Uh, I love Salida. I've been here 50 years, and it, it's a great place. I, I own an auction company here, and it keeps everything going. I started with Salida Circus about probably 10 years ago I was putting balloons into the rodeo system and Jenny sent me to uh, uh, she thought it was a balloon twist in school it was a contest and I won the whole state that was probably 12 years ago and I've been doing balloons ever since for Salida Circus rodeos the most exciting part of being a rodeo clown is when the kids come to you and you make them a balloon animal and you interact with the kids the animals are there the kids are what makes my day. 
gonna make you a rabbit. So you never blow a balloon for a rabbit or an animal all the way up because you gotta expand the air as you're doing it. So you start at the tie of the balloon. Make a tie. I do two hands for one ear. And then come back, that'll make the ears for me. Put a neck on it. Come to your front leg. When you bring the balloon back, it doubles it up, same size. Put a body to it. Put it back. A rabbit's coming through a hole. You've been listening to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana, and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Clark Adamitis, Sarah Flower, Shannon Young, Peggy Hodgkins with Science Moab, and all the folks at KHAN for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. Thank you.